Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, help us spread the word and tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. My heart's broken for my community because I've seen so much pain, but I also can see that our community really has gathered around each other to let each other know that we care. Recovery is slow in Kentucky, six months after devastating floods. It's Thursday, January 26th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. In July, record-breaking storms washed away homes and decimated communities across eastern Kentucky. A little later, we'll hear from one woman whose government relief just came in about how the recovery is going. And we hear from the director of the new film Persian Version, which follows three generations of Iranian-American women as they come to grips with a family secret and occasionally rock out to girls just want to have fun. But first, new numbers out today show the American economy had a strong finish in 2022, despite inflation, rising interest rates, and all that hand-wringing you've heard about the possibility of a recession. The main figure getting attention is the latest report on GDP, or gross domestic product, a measure of all the economic activity at a macro level, which grew at a rate of 2.9% in the last three months of the year. That's faster than many economists had predicted. Maybe you heard our conversation last week with Susan M. Collins, president of the Boston branch of the Federal Reserve. She pushed back against some economists who've been predicting a crash. What I'm seeing in the data show considerable resilience still in our economy. And so I'm what I call realistically optimistic that we can bring inflation down, restore price stability without requiring a significant downturn. Well, if the latest figures are more cause for that realistic optimism, MSNBC anchor and economics correspondent Ali Velshi should know. And that's where Jane Clayson started her conversation with him earlier today. So let's start with that question. Is this report a reason to be realistically optimistic about the economy going into 2023? Yeah, I mean, that's not an economic term, but I love it. Uh, It actually sounds like what I've been hearing from uh, a number of economists. So you talked about gross domestic product rising at a 2.9 annualized pace uh, in the fourth quarter. So we measure it four times a year. Um, That's actually better than expected. But as a rate of growth, which is what this number is, it's lower than the last quarter. Uh, but but it's not bad. I mean, two point nine percent, two point five, two percent. Remember, everything everything above zero is is positive growth. What we're what a lot of economists are thinking is that there will probably be a downturn this year, quite possibly a recession. But it does not seem like it's going to be awfully serious and have all the hallmarks that we're used to uh, of recessions or like the last recession. So. Growth is slowing, there's no question, and we expected that to happen with the rise in interest rates, but it seems to be, the economy seems to be resilient. And consumer spending uh, contributed to a strong fourth quarter. Where are people spending money and which sectors are staying strong? Well, this is interesting because consumer spending is more than two-thirds of GDP, and that's always how it is. But consumer spending doesn't just mean what people are spending at stores. In fact, what we saw was an increase in healthcare and utilities and a decrease in retail spending. So even in December, when you would have expected a lot of spending, um, we saw a little bit of a decrease compared uh, to the last year. So 
maybe the sort of post-COVID, everybody was cooped up and wanted to buy everything under the sun. Uh, some of that has mellowed out. Uh, but the consumer is still responsible for most of GDP, and they are still looking strong. I will say folks are starting to work through their savings. We saw a little more reliance on credit cards. And some people are putting off big ticket items. A lot of those big ticket items, like cars and uh, you know washing machines and refrigerators, were very expensive during COVID because of supply chain issues. And those prices are starting to come down, but they're not back to where they were. So we may see people put off those purchases until those prices come down a little bit. What's happening in the housing market, Allie? It's been hit by high interest rates above six percent. What's going on there? That's obviously the problem, right? When yeah. interest rates go up, the first and most immediate effect is on mortgage rates. So that's the biggest thing that people put off, and we've definitely seen that. If you if you came down from Mars and only used housing as an indicator of the economy, you'd actually think we're in a recession. Uh, residential retail uh, sales fell um, 20% in 2022. That's the first time um, that new home construction has declined since 2009, since the Great Recession. There's drop in construction of single-family homes. All of that stuff is part of why GDP is coming down. It's why people are concerned about a recession. But I will say, Jane, when you raise interest rates, that's the first and most obvious place you're going to see it. So it shouldn't be a surprise that we're seeing it in the housing market more than we're seeing it anywhere else. Realistic optimism. I'm putting that under my belt. <laughs> I, like I like that, that term. <laughs> Ali Belshi, MSNBC anchor and economics correspondent. Ali, thanks as always. Thanks, Jane. picture economic trends do impact our everyday lives, but things like GDP and interest rates are only one measure of the economy. For a lot of people in this country, there are more immediate concerns. After the break, Jane checks back in with a woman we first met six months ago after those floods in Kentucky. Turns out even when the government responds swiftly to promise help, it can take a long time for that help to actually get where it's needed. Stick around. Six months ago, heavy flooding devastated parts of eastern Kentucky, killing 44 people. Swollen creeks swept away homes, and in the small, smoky mountain town of Isom, flooding destroyed everything inside the only grocery store for miles around. We spoke with grocery store owner Gwen Christian back then, and at the end of the interview, she said to me, Don't forget about us. We couldn't forget. And Gwen's back on with us now. Hi, Gwen. Good to talk to you again. Well, it's good to talk to you. You've been in our thoughts. What does your store look like now? Well, my store looks totally different now. What I have actually been able to get accomplished is we have a contractor. They removed all sheetrock, all flooring, all ceiling tile, all shelving, all registers, all everything till we're down to just a square box. Mm. I remember when this happened, you told us that you had $23,000 worth of insurance, and it didn't cover flooding. The health department condemned everything in this store. Back then, did you think that you'd make it to this point? I didn't really know, <laughs> to be honest with you. And the first thing you do whenever devastation hits you, you, you try to absorb what's going on, and then... You know, you turn to your family and you turn to your friends and your work family and you just start kind of gathering together and say, what are we going to do? So you turn to family and friends in the community. I understand you also received a $2 million loan from the Small Business Administration. Have you gotten all the help that you need? 
Yes, we will be able to open our store and be able to uh, serve our customers in the community. But it took a while, right, getting that check? It did. It took us about six months, but we've had community people who has been able to uh, give us some donations and take care of us. And we had a great gift from Father Jim Sisko, who is a missionary of mercy from out of uh, Berea, Kentucky, who actually was able to uh, give me about $100,000. And that's what we've been operating on for the last six months. You know, your store was not just um, the only grocery store in town. It was really a community center. Has the town lost that during this time? And do you think you'll ever get it back? They have lost that. You know, I kind of look at our community and I think we've really had some hard hits in the last few years. COVID was one, but put, you know, everyone inside their homes and kind of kept everybody separated. And right at the time that we were being able to come back out and actually mingle and talk and, uh, you know, just kind of show our friendships and check on our neighbors again, then the flood came through. And uh, when the flood came, it destroyed about 350 houses in our community. So it's kind of put a damper on things, but people are anxious to get back out now. They are anxious to get out, and you're so optimistic. You've really been a caretaker for your employees and many people in this community as you've dealt with your own loss. Um, Your employees have been on unemployment for the past six months. What's next for them? The last unemployment check that they can apply for is for February the 5th. So I will go ahead and get my employees uh, paid for the month of February, and then we hope to be back to work, officially uh, back to work on March the 5th, and we hope to open our doors for our community and, and be able to start serving them the 1st of April. And, you know, you won't say this, but I think you're personally bankrolling some of your employees because Kentucky unemployment only lasts six months. There will be a, a, a period where they're not covered. Well, that's true. My personal family doesn't have any savings or anything left, but that's okay. That's just something we have to do. How would you describe this experience over these last six months, Gwen? I can tell you that I really feel... Um, First of all, my heart's broken for my community because I've seen so much pain, so much hurt in my community. But I also can see that our community really has gathered around each other to let each other know that we care, that we appreciate each other, and we are doing everything we can do to help and support each other. So it's made, a, it's made us even be closer than we were before. As hard as it's been, Gwen, you've got your eyes on your grand opening in April, right? That's correct. And we're excited. Today is Thursday. On Tuesday, we received all of our cases, all of our coolers. And so that was an emotional day. Today, uh, they are setting our coolers and connecting them so they can get ready to do our grand opening. Um, I think grand opening, what we'll basically do is what most people will call a soft grand opening, which means we just unlock the door and welcome people in. And uh, once we get uh, refreshed on, and on our equipment and what we're doing and get everything organized, uh, hopefully in May, we will have a grand opening where we'll have the balloons and all kinds of things going on. Lots of reasons to celebrate. Yes. 
Gwen Christian owns the Isom IGA grocery store in Isom, Kentucky. Gwen, you're an inspiration to many people. All our best to you as you move forward. Thank you. Coming up, Deepa Fernandez speaks with the Iranian-American filmmaker behind Persian Version, which is playing this week at Sundance. That's after the break. The Sundance Film Festival is underway in Park City, Utah. The celebration of cinema includes dozens of marquee movies. One film is by an Iranian-American writer and director who also won the prestigious Audience Award for a previous feature film at Sundance. Mariam Keshavaz joins us now to talk about her latest film, a sweeping family dramedy. It's about three generations of Iranian women, and it bounces across continents and decades to tell the story. It's called The Persian Version. Mariam, welcome to Here and Now. Thanks so much for having me. So let's talk about your film, which I have to say is one of the best movies I think I've ever seen. And it jumps back and forth between the past and present as it tells one family story, which, as I understand it, is your story. The film floats between a few genres. There's drama. It's also funny. There are some fantastic Bollywood-like dance scenes. (laughs) And I have to say, you could have made this a straight drama. Why did you choose not to do that and to infuse it with so much fun? You know, I really feel like any story about immigrants, any story about Iranians truly needs to have a great dance sequence, a lot of amazing food and um, music, because that's so much part of our culture. As a kid, I would go back to Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. People still found a way to have joy In America, through the hard financial times of the 80s with my parents in the 90s, our communities would still get together and and find joy and find uh, celebration with each other. And I think it's about resilience as immigrants, as people facing, um, even in their own home country, facing war and uncertainty. And I think that's so much part of the human spirit. We find a way, no matter what the situation is, to have joy. And even now what's going on in Iran, women are being suppressed. And they still find ways to have joy. They cannot extinguish that from the people. Mm. I mean, I was thinking about how do you write an immigrant story? You know, when Trump came into Mm. power and we became these villains, right? The Muslim ban meant that my sister-in-law couldn't come back. My cousins couldn't. There was a lot of personal things for me that happened. And, And I thought, wow, it kind of harkened back to the days of when I was a small kid in the hostage crisis. We were, again these unknowable people. So I thought if I'm going to do a story about my community, about my culture, it needs to be authentic. It needs to be rife with, uh, you know, drama and secrets and joy and music. And I was really, really propelled with this idea that comedy was the way to break through all of these political barriers that I felt were coming up time and time again. Mm. And it also feels like the other thing about telling an immigrant story is that they can be so cliche. And mm-hmm. and I feel like you totally turned that on its head. And, and I think, you know, your opening sequence completely speaks to that because so I just want to talk for a minute about that opening scene with girls <laughs> just want to have fun. Oh, my gosh. It's a dance scene set in the family courtyard in Shiraz. I love those mother-daughter trips to Iran. We brought a little America to Persia. 
I mean, I just wanted to be a member of your family there, flinging my body and hair around. It was unbridled joy. <laughs> it's such a great feeling. You know, as a kid, I used to like smuggle tapes into Iran because, you know, Western music became banned and it was the 80s. You didn't just <laughs> smuggle tapes in. You, as what, like a seven-year-old, stuck them in your pants because you knew that that was the way to get them past officials at the airport, right? Well, you know, it's a Muslim regime. They, they're really about protecting the woman's body. So I figured between my legs is probably the <laughs> safest place to put a little bit of Cindy so, Lauper and Michael Jackson. <laughs> a little Cindy Lauper and Michael Jackson smuggled in your pants. You come into the country. So I'm guessing that actually really happened. I used to smuggle a lot of different things for my cousins. You know, there'd be like a laundry <laughs> list of what they wanted. So like, tapes were like I would stick in my undies. Sometimes I would they wanted magazines. I would try to hide in my bag. Um, all different sort of things. And, you know, sometimes I was brave and I would get it through. Sometimes I would freak out like, no, they're going to bust me today. So I'd go break the cassette tapes and flush it down the toilet before I went through the customs <laughs> control. It was always a question of trying to gauge if I was going to get busted or not. And, but I just always remember that feeling of when I would emerge from the airport, I, we would get home and I would pull out those tapes. And it was such a celebration of music. It was such a celebration of family. You know, they love Western music. And, you know, also as a kid in Iran, they love Bollywood sequences. You know, Bollywood was a huge respite for my family during the Iran-Iraq mm. war. We used to watch the yeah. tapes and everything. And of course, all of this stuff is illegal at the time. So I just, I wanted to blend the Bollywood obsession with the American music obsession. And I came up with a Bollywood version of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. So great. Okay, let's talk about your mum. I mean, what a woman, or, or really the mum in the film. She's complex, sometimes cold, but loving and fierce, and literally like a superwoman. So we, the audience, are primed in a way at the beginning to not like her because of the way she shuts out her only daughter for being gay. But as you delve into her own life through stories from the grandmother, we learn what an incredible amount she's been through. So is this character based on your mom and you? The character of me and my mother are very much based in our lives. My mother's story is pretty much verbatim true. My mom mm. is an incredible woman and I wanted to start with our conflict and I wanted to start with this idea that we think we know people. We judge people all the time from an interaction, from a thought that they have. And I think the process of writing the film was a process of me understanding my mother, understanding her history and coming to a character that everyone loves, but really evaluating her strength she embodies resilience, you know, and it's something I learned in becoming a filmmaker and becoming a woman in this very difficult industry. But I didn't really understand until writing the story, the position mm -hmm. I played in her life and in the position I played in our family's karmic history. So I have to say, Mariam, one of the things I love about this movie is how it's so casually exposes many of the illogical things about America, and it does so using the immigrant gaze. I'm just going to tell you what I mean by that. So in the film, the father needs, a, needs heart surgery, and despite the fact that he's a doctor and has been in America for decades and treated so many people and cured so many people, his hospital bill is enough to bankrupt the family, and the hospital suggests his wife sell all they have to pay for it, and she's just baffled that they'd have to throw away everything 
to pay for his heart surgery. I can see here that he owns his own office. Okay, so? Well, consider selling the office. She was too proud to fail. She was never going back to her home country. So it was success in America or bust. Sell the office to pay a hospital bill? Yes. And then there's this other example where to earn money when the father's income disappears after his heart surgery, the mum trains to be a real estate agent and then starts selling to other immigrants. And a colleague watching her close a deal derides her for selling to an East Asian family. So, Shireen, uh, you're running a refugee camp here or what? Third closing this week. You're doing better than me. Funny thing about refugees is... They love to buy homes. Okay, so she goes on to close many deals. She's the top-selling employee because she's cornered the market on selling to immigrants, which no one else does. I want you to talk about these pretty subtle yet very deep critiques of the establishment in America from the perspective of immigrants, which is what I feel like your film does over and over. (laughs) That's very astute of you. Um... Yes, I mean, the whole issue of medical bills has been a big part of our family. My dad, yes, he treated the poor in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn for his entire life. And yet he, we faced astronomical costs when he became sick. And even as kids, you know, we didn't have insurance to go to a doctor. We used to go to my dad's friends and there was this unspoken rule that doctors didn't charge each other. And it's so emblematic in America. Even those that we count on to heal us are themselves not protected. Those that are that are such an important parts of our society themselves are so vulnerable. In one illness, you can lose everything. It's a real, you know, issue for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, we don't often give space for an immigrant critique of how America works. Mm-hmm. Those voices are not often heard. There is this innovation that happens with immigrants. And I guess that's why America wants and welcomes immigrants on so many levels. They find the way that nobody else can because they have to. And that's the story of my mother. She, my dad was sick. She couldn't get a regular job. She didn't have any qualifications. She never even finished high school. She couldn't type. But she was smart. She was great at math. And she found this loophole that she could become a real estate agent if she just had a high school diploma. So she got her high school diploma simultaneous to taking her real estate test. And she then enters an industry that she shouldn't succeed in, but she finds a way. Hey, let me let me target to people that are just like me. What do immigrants want the most in the world? They want to buy a home. They want to have stability. Their whole reason, they've left everything behind. My mother left everything behind herself because they came for a dream. They came for this idea stability of home, of literally buying a home. And so my mom tapped into that. Mariam Keshavarz is a filmmaker, writer and director of the new feature, The Persian Version. Thank you so much for making this film and for talking with us about it today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, it's been a great joy. This show comes to you from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Tomorrow on the show, we'll hear some citrus recipes to help get you through the winter from resident chef Kathy Gunst. So make sure you're subscribed to Here and Now anytime so you don't miss it. And head to our website for the latest news, including reaction to Pope Francis's statement that being gay is not a crime in the eyes of the Catholic Church. 
as well as updates from Memphis and the police beating of Tyree Nichols. That's at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Thomas Danielian, Lynn Menegon, and Shirley Jihad. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Patrick O'Connor and Max Liebman. Theme music by me, Max, and Mike Moschetto. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.